Hey people, hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm your host Mauricio Magaldi and this is episode 197. As always, I'm joined by my amazing co-host Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. How are you doing Kai? I'm fantastic. I'm excited to learn. We've got an incredible guest who's an expert in this area and a lot going on in, in DC. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, today's topic is regulation and a lot of progress has been made in the recent months. In this episode in particular, we're going to have a heavier focus on U.S. regulatory updates. We'll go over some historic wins in crypto regulation and dig into how the debates around regulation will impact the future of crypto in the U.S. For that, we're joined today by Tamika Tilleman. Welcome to the show. He's the Chief Policy Officer at Home Ventures. How are you doing today, Tamika? It's great to have you with us. Can you let us know a little bit about yourself and Home Ventures, please? Marvelous. Well, it's great to be with you and thank you for the invitation. Uh, I came to this work through a circuitous path that only makes sense in hindsight, uh, but has provided a, a good array of experiences for the type of policy engagement we need right now in the ecosystem. I started in Washington working for a then little known Delaware Senator named Joe Biden uh, and was with him for four years on the staff of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, worked closely with him, with Tony Blinken, with Barack Obama and John Kerry, uh, and then went over to the State Department where I was Secretary Clinton's speechwriter for a while. She eventually, after after a couple of hundred speeches, asked me to lead a team that operated a little bit like a State Department version of DARPA, building out innovative projects at the intersection of non-state diplomacy and technology, probably the best job in Washington. And in the course of that work, became very interested in this technology, uh, eventually was asked by Katie Hahn uh, to go over to Andreessen Horowitz as their global head of policy, uh, was able to work with an amazing crew on these uh, issues. Uh, and about a year and a half ago, when Katie launched the firm, uh, I was one of the handful of folks that she invited to go with her to start Han Ventures. Uh, and it's been an amazing ride ever since. I'm so delighted to be with you here today. Great. No, great. Thanks for joining. And a very warm welcome back to Catherine Gu, head of CBDC and protocols at Visa. Uh, we did have a great discussion with her on the future of CBDC episode that I hope you guys have listened to. Otherwise, go back and listen to that. Catherine, uh, welcome again. And can you uh, reintroduce yourself to the audience? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm very excited to be here. I'm part of Kai's team on Visa Crypto. I lead on what we're doing around digital currencies, which looks at uh, CBDC, stablecoins, and tokenized of bank deposits. We also have a new team that looks deeply into the fundamentals around blockchain protocols. And this is a team of researchers in which uh, we're actively exploring things such as account distractions, you know, consensus mechanisms, and the like. So Awesome. So before we get properly into the show, there is a little announcement that we have to make. I'm going to hand it over to you, Kai, to explain a little bit of what's going to come in the next few months. Yeah, so I'm super excited. My wife and I are expecting our first child any day now. So I, I will be heading out on, on paternity leave and really excited that Catherine will, will be taking over the, the co-host chair for you know, the, the coming episodes. And we're really lucky to have you know, Catherine at, at Visa. She's got an incredible amount of knowledge around central bank digital currency, tokenized deposits, you know, all the way to a lot of the latest innovations coming out of the crypto ecosystem. So I'm um, excited for the listeners to, to get to know Catherine and, and learn from, from all of her experience. And I think you know, I will be listening to the show you know, with, with my newborn <laughs> while I'm changing diapers. And so looking forward to, to the next episodes. Amazing. Congratulations on the 
soon-to-be-minted new NFT in your household. So that will be very exciting, I'm sure. So great. Uh, before we dive in, just as a reminder to our listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. Go do your own research. Let's get started. So let's take a quick recap on what's happened in the recent story of crypto regulation. July was a big month where multiple standalone crypto bills here and there have been advanced to the House of Representatives. Uh, in order for a bill to be signed into law, both the House of Representatives and the Senate in the U.S. must pass the law by a majority vote, and then it's sent to president who has veto power. Uh, before it even gets to the House for votes, it goes through often a long process of debate and amendments and commissions and whatnot. So this is huge. So let's look at some of the progress made in these uh, crypto regulation space and the proposed bill. So July, the Financial Innovation and Technology for the 21st Century Act, that's a long name, advanced. Uh, this marks the first time crypto-specific bills were advanced on their own merits and not as part of a broader legislation or baked into something else. The bill establishes rules for crypto firms to create a solid process for determining if a digital asset is a commodity or a security. This is the degree of clarity that's needed in the industry right now. So multiple bills were introduced to combat the potential use of crypto for illegal activities. So again, in July, the Blockchain Regulatory Clarity Act and the Financial Technology Protection Act both advanced to the House floor requiring the Treasury to establish examination standards for crypto assets and to conduct a study on combating anonymous crypto asset transactions. We've had a huge wins for stablecoin regulations as well. So two bills were introduced in 2022, the Stablecoin Trust Act and the Stablecoin Innovation and Protection Act. So the main debates of these bills have been around whether tokens are securities or commodities, whether stablecoins should be regulated at the federal state level, and the level of examinations required for crypto on terrorism finance and money laundering issues that speak to the national security of the United States. So let's dive deeper into what the potential impact of these regulations could be and the main debates happening around the bills. So I want to start uh, by kind of quantifying how big this moment is for crypto as an industry. Uh, Kirsten Smith, CEO of the Blockchain Association, referred to the passing of the FIT21 bill to be by far the most significant legislative moment that we've had in crypto. So I'm going to run the panel and see, do you agree with that statement? And, and what does that, it actually mean in terms of the indication of going forward? I'm going to go with our guests first. Tomika, what is your reading in the moment right now? Well, it is certainly true that this is a big deal. Uh, legislating in the United States by design is incredibly complicated. It is not easy to get anything through Congress under the best of circumstances. Uh, and for those of you who may not have been paying attention, uh, the last few years have hardly been the best of circumstances when it comes to the ability uh, of Congress to, uh, to move legislation. And so getting these bills, which as you said, are standalone dedicated pieces of legislation, 
legislation dedicated to creating an enabling environment for this technology in the United States uh, through the relevant congressional committees is a big deal. And it's an even bigger deal because, uh, at least in the case of the FIT21 Act, which is the the way we have shortened the the rather lengthy moniker that uh, you described earlier, uh, we had it go through not only one committee, the House Financial Services Committee, which you would have expected, but two committees, the House Agriculture Committee as well. The United States is the only country in the world, and we can get into this more later, that has separate regulatory rules and separate regulators for commodities and securities. Uh, And what that means is that both the House Agriculture Committee and the House Financial Services Committee had to sign off on this. Uh, And the fact that they did so is a very big deal. So yes, this is an important moment, still a long path ahead. Uh, I wish we could say at, at this stage, that it's all going to be easy from here on out. It won't be, uh, but it is nonetheless a very consequential milestone and a moment for the ecosystem to hopefully redouble its efforts around policy engagement uh, going forward. In comparative terms, both Catherine and Kai, you you guys have like this global view of what's going on. Does it feel the same when, say, Singapore, you know, enacts a 11 stablecoin law for 11 stable coins to be issued in the country. What is the, the relative impact of things like this? Because we know the role and the, the size of the US when it comes not only to the traditional financial market, but also in a crypto. How do you guys compare that with the rest of the world? So maybe I'll, I'll start. In, in my mind, I think it's interesting that it, it seems like the conversation has evolved from do we want stable coins to exist or not? And are stable coins a you know good thing or a desirable thing? Are they useful or an innovative thing? To how should stable coins be regulated? And I think that that's a a big step forward. And I think the reality is that stable coins exist today, and stable coins are very likely going to exist you know for many years going forward. And I think that the more that you see regulators and policymakers outside the United States. You know, putting together rules for stablecoin issuers, and even frankly for issuers of dollar stablecoins, you start you start to ask the question of: Do we want to be the ones creating the rules for dollar stablecoin issuers here, or is everyone else around the world going to create rules for dollar-based stablecoins to be issued there? And so, I think that that's one of the the most important steps that that I've seen. And and now there's a long way to go from you know people agreeing these will exist, how should we regulate them, to people agreeing exactly what the rules should be. But it's at least a step forward where we're not debating that you know this might be a technology that just goes away and that we never have to think about. And so it's kind of, it becomes more of a when, not if. Uh, and I think that's going to be the most important question of you know how long does it take for the U.S. to get to some type of you know, legislation around stablecoins and what are the the risks and trade-offs, you know, the longer that it takes around how the market could develop, you know, even in the the meantime. I, I completely agree with what Kai just said. And I think if we just look across the globe, 
there's definitely the sort of like differences in terms of the pace of development, right, by different countries in terms of where they're at in today, uh, whether it's with respect to crypto in general or like, you know, what exactly is that regulatory framework we're having for stablecoins. And I think increasingly that's going to be one of the key determining factors for where the future businesses relating to crypto and the future of finance will be centered around I think both of us have said that clarity is one of the most important things that right now the industry is looking for. And I can just give a very simple example, because I think the term stablecoin is used quite loosely. You know, we are familiar with what a stablecoin is, but if you see in the news from time to time that even bank, even regulated entities today have been experimenting with, say, a stablecoin that's being launched by banks. So increasingly, that sort of gap is being a bit murky and hence it becomes even more important to have that very clear framework and the approach to how should we be treating these and whether, you know, what's the difference that is with respect to tokenized bank deposits and CBDCs, which will be very important for the future business to operate. And I, and I like that we're kind of going, not going back, but we, we kind of thread through this theme around stablecoins because stablecoins seem to be right now uh, the killer case for the killer use case for crypto in general terms of widespread adoption. Uh, so much that if you look around the world, Singapore, as I mentioned, there is a framework for stable coins. The IMF has a blueprint recommendation for wholesale CBDCs, and you have uh, South Korea coming with uh, a specific digital asset bill. Even in, in Africa, Nigeria has approved a national blockchain policy, as many other countries have done. So the pace in which these things are happening, how far behind is the U.S. in terms of, you know, maturity of that discussion? And what is the type of work that the U.S. is going to have to have now to deploy into this direction to catch up to all of this? Because don't get me wrong, this is a geopolitical battleground that we're seeing emerge on the back of technology, which might be very different you know, in five years than it is now, how do you catch up to that? I'm going to go with you, Tomika. In your perspective, what is the amount of work and the type of work, maybe more importantly, that U.S. legislators and regulators are going to have to deploy to catch up to all of that? Well, there are two sides of this, as you mentioned earlier. As it stands today, the overwhelming preponderance of the G20 and the overwhelming preponderance of the OECD, these are the most important groupings of kind of big, wealthy countries in the world with open economies, uh, are moving rapidly to create regulatory frameworks for digital assets, uh, and in most cases, stablecoins as well. So there is a ton of work that has happened across other jurisdictions around the world, and many jurisdictions, whether it's the EU, the UK, Japan, are substantially ahead of the United States when it comes to putting those rules in place. So it is critical for U.S. policymakers and U.S. market actors to recognize that at the moment, the United States is not in the driver's seat when it comes to defining the regulatory parameters of what the ecosystem will look like going forward. The flip side of that is that the U.S., for a variety of reasons, remains a very consequential actor. It is where a lot of the initial innovation that has enabled these technologies occurred. And by virtue of that, you have some of the most important and consequential private sector solutions, either 
resident in the United States or, or uh, closely uh, aligned with the United States and, and our regulatory activity uh, in terms of how they are evolving. So the U.S. has an unfair advantage, frankly, notwithstanding the fact that our policymakers have been a little bit slow to this party. What I think you're seeing right now, and this was very evident in many of the committee hearings that uh, preceded adoption uh, of these recent pieces of legislation, is that smart policymakers understand the stakes. They recognize that, to your point earlier, Mauricio, there is a very real and urgent geopolitical competition uh, around payment rails. And the United States, frankly, has not done as much innovation as it should when it comes to creating good rules for 21st century payments architecture. And so there is now a push to catch up, and the U.S. Uh, is in a position, uh, by virtue of the other advantages that I mentioned earlier, to make up that lost ground. But it's going to have to coordinate more effectively than it has to date on these issues. At the end of the day, I tend to be a big believer in Winston Churchill's old maxim that the United States always does the right thing after exhausting every other available alternative. Uh, for the last couple of years, we've been in the process of exhausting every other available alternative. Hopefully, we're about done with that now uh, and are ready to get to work making some serious rules. No, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you don't get to become a powerhouse, global powerhouse, and, and, and let it slide. And the fact that there's activity, not questioning the existence of the industry, as Kai said, but trying to shape how that industry is going to look like is, is a very powerful statement for the rest of the world to, to pay attention to. Now, um, let's drill a little bit into the uh, FIT21 bill um, that was passed in the House, uh, the one that provides a path for uh, cryptocurrency to maybe move out of the SEC remit into CFTC on the whole discussion about it being a commodity or security. How do you break down the difference uh, between these two components uh, for the audience? Um, it's just not the difference on the reg. You mentioned the, 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 maybe the only country to have the separate regulator for these two things. What is the implication of having these two different regulators when it comes to a new asset class that people are still trying to figure out what they are? Well, in the immediate term, what it means is that there's a bit of a turf war, uh, and this is unfortunate. Uh, when the EU or the UK or Japan decide that they want to make new rules uh, for these types of assets, they can operate on a pretty unified basis, uh, and they can make decisions relatively quickly without a bureaucratic tug of war. Uh, we don't have that luxury in the United States for a variety of reasons. And the reality is that securities law and commodities law in the United States goes back to the Great Depression. These are very, very old legislative and regulatory frameworks that we are dealing with. There are, of course, some advantages that come with having a long track record, but when it comes to 21st century innovations that, frankly, are very, very different uh, from the instruments that the rules and regulations that are currently in place were originally designed to deal with, it can be a bit of a hindrance as well. Our current securities and commodities law not only predate the invention of digital assets, they predate the invention of the semiconductor. Uh, and so there are some really, really big gaps uh, at play. In practice, what it means is that 
neither securities law nor commodities law in the United States uh, or our securities and commodities regulators are well equipped for dealing with these instruments. And you need to update the system. You need to update the rules that have been put in place in order to allow digital assets to flourish in the United States. That's going to require clearly defining who's in charge, because at the moment, uh, there's some real ambiguity on that question. The head of the CFTC has said under oath to Congress uh, that he is convinced that uh, a lot of the digital assets that are out there, uh, including things like Ethereum, are digital commodities, while the head of the SEC is making a variety of contradictory claims. And so for those that are trying to build right now, that ambiguity is a huge challenge, uh, and we need to get that cleared up. You also need to clear up a path to market for these instruments. The regulations that were put in place for securities are not well suited for digital assets for a variety of reasons. You can either update those rules or you can shift the jurisdiction over to the CFTC, the Commodities Futures uh, Trading Commission, which is uh, responsible uh, for commodities regulation. And there's probably going to be a better fit there. And the CF, the, the new FIT21 Act does that in, in some cases and moves authority over uh, to the CFTC. The bigger challenge that I think undergirds all of this is there are complicated politics involved, uh, at least in uh, the the House and, and especially in the Senate. And if you want to get these pieces of legislation actually enacted, you need to run a pretty daunting gauntlet of members with divergent views on these issues and divergent interests. Ultimately, this isn't just about which regulator is going to have jurisdiction. It's also about which congressional committees are going to have jurisdiction over these assets. And so there are a whole variety of incentives that get very complicated very quickly uh, as you're trying to get new rules over the finish line. This is one of my questions that I've been thinking about more around like there, there's this risk for any industry to, to be seen as partisan. And you know, then you have, there's only one side of the aisle that's willing to talk about it, it's willing to make progress. Like, maybe to Michael, where do you see crypto today on that scale of, you know, is there more progress being made, making it more bipartisan? Has it become less bipartisan? If we look back, you know, over the last, you know, one to two years, and what do you think are the most important elements and things that the industry and proponents can do to make it as bipartisan as possible to try and avoid you know, just being stuck on, on one side? Well, it's a really critical question, Kai. And I would say for, that for most of the history of the technology, this was a pre-partisan issue. So it was neither Republican nor Democratic in its orientation. This was an issue that hadn't yet gotten to a point where it had real political leanings one way or another. You saw and still see today very strong supporters on the left, uh, like Richie Torres, uh, and you see very strong supporters on the right, like Tom Emmer. And so you had uh, a lot of people from across the ideological map that were interested in the tech and saw that it had an important future in the United States. 
I still think that is the case to an extent, but it has unquestionably become more complicated, especially in the aftermath of FTX. And what you've seen is that a handful of very vocal members, uh, primarily on the far left of the Democratic Party, my party, have become, uh, for some good but a lot of bad reasons, concerned about the technology. Uh, and they are pushing a variety of different measures that make it much less likely uh, that the technology will be able to mature uh, in the United States the way that it should. The Democratic Party is a plural noun, and you need to treat it like a plural noun. There were a lot of Democrats who crossed the aisle and supported the Fit 21 Act. There were a lot of Democrats who crossed the aisle to support uh, the stablecoin legislation uh, that moved through the Financial Services Committee. In the House Agriculture Committee, the Fit 21 Act was passed on a voice vote, which meant, in essence, that nobody present objected strongly uh, to what was being put forward. So there is still a lot of room for bipartisanship, but the politics are becoming more complicated, uh, and it's important for the industry to recognize that. The, the last piece that I think is really important for all of us to keep in mind is that voters that use digital assets are now a very substantial part of the electorate. We have done polling on this, and about one in five voters in battleground states in the United States use digital assets or hold digital assets. A substantial portion of that group, about half of that group, are using digital assets to send remittances to family members. So they have a powerful stake uh, in guaranteeing the future of the technology. This is something that is making their lives and the lives of their family members significantly better. And in a world where 90% of all securities are held by the wealthiest 10% of households, it's really hard to look at the old system and say, that's delivering a whole lot of opportunity for all of the stakeholders that should have a piece in the system. It's not. These, these old systems, frankly, are not meeting the needs of huge portions uh, of the electorate, huge portions of the population. So mobilizing that voice in the upcoming election is going to be crucial to ensuring that both Democrats and Republicans see the need to create a path forward for this technology in the United States and adopt good, smart, enabling regulations that will protect consumers, but also promote innovation. Maybe I can add something because I, I really echo some of the things that Monica just said, because I think we tend to confluence so many ideas together. And it's funny because it depends on how you describe this technology. You know, DLT resonates a lot more with regulators than if you talk about blockchain or crypto, of course. And I think this is where we need to get a lot cleaner and narrower when we're trying to figure out what are we regulating and therefore how do we regulate it. And I think I t in my mind, at least, I tend to think about the technology, which is what is the software you're using in, in terms of building out the payment rails, the infrastructure bit away from the assets itself, whether that's like cryptocurrencies as asset, which is going to be different from stable coins, and of course, going to be different from CBDCs and the rest. I think that's going to be a very important distinction. Because, for example, I can see blockchain technology being used, not necessarily just in financial payments and such, but it is a piece of software that you can leverage in many different ways. But as I'm looking at stable coins, that has a very specific meaning and uh, application when it's pertaining to finance, which is very important to distinguish. And it's a good kind of segue into kind of my next next question. Um, both of your arguments 
kind of strongly lean on the space for stable coins, right? Remittances and the people using it, the practical use case of crypto. I think those are kind of confirming our initial consideration of, well, this seems to be the killer, the killer app for, for uh, crypto in general. So, but in the US, there's also this tension between being a stable coin regulated at the federal level or at the state level. And, and obviously the banks have their state regulators that they abide to, and then you have the Federal Reserve. It, what is what is the angle there? I mean, is, 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 is this something that from the legislation that are the legislation that are gonna come out on stablecoin, this gets clarified and then the ruling becomes just how people do things? Is there a subsequent discussion about okay, now that there's a rule for stable coins? Who gets to regulate it on the banks that are state-based or the banks that are national in range? What is the, the architecture for making the stablecoin legislation and then regulation work in such a f- potentially fragmented uh, circumstance? Well, the, this is a very complicated question, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, it is arguably the most fundamental question that remains unanswered uh, in the legislative debate uh, on these issues. The preponderance of folks that you will talk to in industry, I think it's fair to say, believe that there is a real need for a state pathway for stablecoin regulation. There are a lot of state regulators out there that have, at this point, extensive experience uh, managing uh, the issuance of these types of instruments. Um, Here I'm thinking about regulators like the New York Department of Financial Services, which has been doing this for a while with a very rigorous uh, regulatory framework. Nobody would, uh, I think, suggest for a moment that uh, NYDFS has been lenient or lax in, in how it's approached these issues. Uh, And they have created, as a consequence of the experimentation that's gone on at the state level, some good viable models for how you take stablecoins from concept to very, very wide deployment uh, in the world. Uh, And we're already seeing a lot of benefits from that uh, in a variety of different settings. The the flip side of this is that the Federal Reserve and uh, some of the banking regulators uh, in the United States have been concerned that the creation of different state regulatory frameworks could ultimately lead to either instability or a race to the bottom in terms of how these things are regulated. Uh, There have been approaches put on the table that would provide for some minimum federal standards or create mechanisms for regulators to step in 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 exigent circumstances. We haven't, unfortunately, yet seen a compromise that satisfies everyone uh, on this issue. Uh, and, And that is part of why the debate on stablecoin legislation got, I think, unexpectedly uh, testy uh, in in the House Financial Services Committee uh, when this legislation was up for consideration. Uh, But the two sides aren't that far apart, and there are enough potential compromises that hopefully there is going to be a path forward. We just haven't quite landed there yet. Uh, But you're, you're right, Mauricio, this is the key issue at the moment. It's also just interesting to see that, like, while this is being debated, products are being released and launched and starting to scale under the state frameworks right now. And so even to just see PayPal's decision, you know, to launch, you know, their stablecoin, which I, I'd argue is one of one of the biggest 
kind of moments in crypto and stablecoin payments, you know, with a major provider like PayPal getting into the market and doing that through the state path and and the experience that the NYDFS you know has on it. And so it seems that a number of companies, you know, they're not waiting until you know this is clarified until there is a a, a federal option. And so that the longer that you go without you know, any level of, of legislation that happens, you know, one potential outcome or more and more products that are launched through state options and that scale through state options. And so it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what what the balance is. And and particularly because it it it's not just about, you know, products that US consumers or that New York consumers will use. It's about products that consumers all over the world may use. And so I think that's another really interesting angle of like if stablecoins are are going to get you know critical mass of consumers in Argentina and in Nigeria and in a number of different markets, who should be the regulator that's you know ensuring consumer protection for those products when you know the consumers may be all over the world? And I feel like that's a bit different than you know, some of the existing products regulated at at the the state level that are very much you know U.S. you know centric products. Yeah, Catherine, in that kind of context, do you do you think that the potential, and I quote, simplicity <laughs> um, of a CBDC being that's centrally issued and managed and, and all of that will be more appealing to particular use cases other than the whole potential confusion of state regulated and issued stable coins for the final user. What will be the trade-offs in, you know, between these two things uh, when you think about a wider context of, you know, there will be a CBDC at some point. I think that's a really, really interesting question just to think through because, I mean, certainly looking from a certainty, a, the, the level of certainty and clarity perspective, I think it's hard to argue that, you know, CBDC certainly have a lot more of certainty because if it's regulated and, I mean, it's going to be representing the liability of a central bank and that is that direct relationship. Therefore, whether that's with the Fed or the BOE or the rest, uh, you know when they come out, it's going to be sort of already being regulated, so to speak, according to what is the mandate from the central bank. And essentially, that's still central bank money. Whereas, as we said before, that given that because there's still this sort of grayish area, it might slow down just the the sort of product ideations built directly on stablecoins as such, because some of these businesses might need to wait for that certainty to happen. That said, though, I don't think this alone would be the major driver to dictate which one is going to win out or not. Certainly, I think when you're looking at use cases, there's a whole range of motivations behind. And I think in some of our previous episodes, we discussed one thing is, you know, if we're looking at just CBDCs right now, there's that dichotomy between whether it's better for a country to issue a wholesale CBDC versus a retail CBDC. And I think definitely if you're a financial institution, you might be thinking about what could be, say, a disintermediating effect. It is to my own existing financial businesses if retail CBDC is to become sort of the mainstream alternative. And therefore, I'd rather to have the banks to issue their own stable coins. Uh, And maybe the PayPal movement was sort of a precursor to what other FIs could be thinking through. That could be interesting. But I do think that, you know, even so in that realm, given for banks, there are a lot you know, they really do need to have that certainty from regulators. I think it's very unlikely for them to really issue live stable coins or tokenized bank deposits unless they have a very clear green light coming from their uh, respective regulators to do so. 
I think that's certainly true for the US, but I think for other countries, as you're thinking about the use cases for stable coins, that then becomes a different story, perhaps for uh, demand for dollar as a major driver. And I think there's going to be continued uh, demand for stable coins, especially the US dollar ones. To Micah, I'm curious, your perspective on the current perception of CBDC in the conversations that you're having, because it felt like it's changed a lot in the US in the last year where, you know, it seemed like there was a time where it was almost like CBDC was a solution that we don't need stable coins, we could just do CBDC. And there are people that were excited about Fed accounts and and it was kind of this state government option. And then now we see, you know, bills being introduced to ban CBDC. So like what what happened and like what what is the the kind of public you know momentum of that concept, even the term CBDC in some of these legislative discussions? I think there's both a a practical dimension of this and a political dimension of this. Practically speaking, the U.S. is way behind when it comes to developing anything resembling a CBDC. Uh, A lot of folks will think that's a good thing, but the reality is that if the U.S. were to decide tomorrow that it wanted to issue a serious consumer-oriented CBDC, we would be about 10 years away from the leaders uh, in that space. And and it's going to be very hard for the United States to close that gap quickly. Beyond that, uh, the relevant federal authorities have been very clear that they cannot and will not issue a CBDC in the absence of enabling legislation. And nobody thinks that, nobody that I've spoken to, thinks that there is any realistic probability of enabling legislation coming through Congress for a CBDC uh, anytime soon. There is a political discussion that's kind of grown up alongside this that uh, I think uh, has concerned uh, or played on the concerns that a lot of people have about the potential use of a CBDC for surveillance, the potential use of a CBDC uh, to manipulate behavior by individual actors within the economy. A lot of those concerns are uh, legitimate and that a bad government with control of a CBDC could do all of those things. We are seeing uh, some governments around the world do those things now uh, as they take greater control of payments infrastructure. So it's not irrational to be worried about those topics. But the U.S. at the moment is not yet in a place where that's even a realistic possibility. Private sector stablecoins are quite advanced in the U.S., and we do have some world-leading offerings when it comes to that area of economic activity that, if we were smart, would enable us to project the power of the dollar and the influence of the dollar uh, more broadly across the world. And so hopefully that is an area where policymakers will really lean in. Uh, But at the moment, both sides of this conversation are frankly a little bit uh, broken. There's no imminent fear of a CBDC becoming a reality uh, in the United States. Uh, But the flip side of that is it will be critical for policymakers to ensure that there are good safeguards in place around privacy, good safeguards in place uh, around the use of these assets to ensure that they don't become instruments for coercion on the part of either public or private actors uh, as they start to gain traction. Yeah, that's all you can hope for when you're talking about public money uh, centrally issued. So we're going to take a quick pause and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities, and Visa's helping everyone take part. 
consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Welcome back. So we did a deep dive on the debates happening on the Hill. Uh, the great news that these bills passing have represented, and there's a lot to look forward to. So there is a whole process ahead of these bills becoming law ultimately, right? So what happens next? What are what are the odds of these things happening, you know, depending on the bill, say FIT21? What happens next? Uh, Tomika, can you walk us through a little bit of the process that goes forward and maybe we can kind of investigate or speculate on, on what are the odds of these things ever seeing the light of the day on the other side of the process? Well, there's a short-term conversation here and a long-term uh, conversation here. Uh, in the short term, the first thing that has to happen is Congress has to figure out how to avoid a government shutdown. Until that conversation runs its course, it will be very, very difficult to get the floor time, so the, the actual debate time on the floor of the Congress, that would be needed to get these bills through the House of Representatives. Once we make it through uh, the prospect of a government shutdown, then there is a real opening for a debate on the floor of the U.S. Congress about these pieces of legislation. And if they were to go to the full Congress, there's a significant possibility that they will pass and they'll probably pass with some Democratic votes. The margin is going to matter a great deal. Uh, and this is where individuals who are listening to this podcast can make a big difference. If you care about the future of this technology, it will be important to let your representatives in Congress know, because uh, whether these bills pass with a handful of Democratic votes or a lot of Democratic votes will probably determine whether they have any realistic prospect of being taken up for consideration in the Senate. Uh, if they are taken up for consideration in the Senate, there will be a, a long and daunting uh, back and forth there uh, among the, the various committee members to get something first through uh, the Senate committees and, and then to the floor uh, of the U.S. Senate. Assuming it passes the Senate, it then goes to uh, the president for signature, and presumably uh, the bills would need to be supported by the Treasury Department uh, in order to get the president's signature. At the moment, Treasury has not supported these bills, so there's, there's some room uh, that we're going to have to travel there. The flip side of this is this is a long-term process, and even if they don't make it all the way into law in this Congress, there will be future Congresses. 
for a variety of reasons, there's a significant probability that the House of Representatives will flip in the next electoral cycle and will be led by Democrats. There's also significant probability that the Senate will flip and be led by Republicans. That would mean a new cast of characters in charge of the various committees and potentially a better path forward uh, for these pieces of legislation. It is foundationally important in, in the United States Politics drives our policy and policy shapes our regulation. And so if we want our regulations to be better, we ultimately need to impact the politics. And a few quick stats on why I think we have the potential to do this. You now have five times as many Americans using digital assets as own electric vehicles. 3.5 times as many Americans own digital assets as participate in organized labor, belong to a union. Uh, unions are historically one of the most powerful forces in American politics. Twice as many American families own digital assets as directly own stock. So this is a big, important constituency, but it's going to have to raise its voice. It's going to have to convey to policymakers that this is a basket of issues and an economic opportunity that really matters for the United States going forward. It seems like one of the things that people in the industry are, are saying is that it's like clarity will come one way or another, either in the courts or in Congress and like through legislation. And it's like there are these parallel paths you know, happening at the same time, but it, I imagine they're influencing each other in, in some way. And so maybe what influence do you think some of the recent court cases have had in, you know, is that changing perceptions or kind of increasing the importance of legislation, do you think, to Micah? Well, you've seen a variety of defeats in just the last couple of weeks, both for the SEC and also for the Federal Trade Commission. And that is forcing regulators to go back to the drawing board, because what is happening right now as a result of some of the overreach that we've seen, particularly from the SEC, is that they are putting at risk not only their enforcement powers as it relates to digital assets, but also potentially their enforcement powers on a whole range of unrelated issues in technology. Ultimately, if these cases end up before the Supreme Court, it's very hard to imagine a world uh, in at least the, the current political environment where the existing Supreme Court is not going to push back very aggressively on some of the steps that the SEC has taken to date. And so you're creating for, for Democrats in particular who are staying on the sidelines of this debate, they're running a risk that ultimately the rules are going to be set by uh, the Supreme Court, and those rules are probably not going to be rules that Democrats agree with. So you're absolutely right, Kai. There's some really important dynamics at play. Many lawmakers may not have fully played this out in their own minds to, to understand what the stakes are, but the more lawmakers recognize this, hopefully uh, the more you will see willingness to find compromise on a responsible set of rules. There's uh we, we need to kind of start uh, wrapping up the episode, but uh, we again we could sit here for hours and just talk about this. There's one quote from uh, Brett Quick, the head of government affairs at the Crypto Council for Innovation, uh, who said in an article, um, and I quote, "It is important to remember that even in the absence of the president's signature, these proposals will serve proposals will serve as the foundation for ongoing considerations around regulating crypto in the United States." Uh, end quote. So, just quick kind of 
wrapping commentary on this. Do you guys agree or not and why? And why would you expect if none of this passes, what do you expect with the markets to either embrace where the laws were kind of going but didn't? Or are we going to see another generation of debates that is going to take either courts or forever 20, 50 years to come around? Sure. I, I think, you know, we, we said at the beginning of the podcast, I don't think that for the US, there's certainly like a first move advantage, so to speak, to, you know, get the, the law and everything, the framework for the crypto. But certainly, I think by now, the time is right, because especially on a global scale, we are seeing these heterogeneities in terms of the advancement uh, of these regulatory approach for crypto. And I think it is very important to have the clarity in order for business to have the confidence to remain in the US and therefore will be beneficial for the competitiveness, so to speak. Kai, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think as a major factor in just legitimizing the industry and and the technology. And I think, you know, a few years ago, like there were real questions of, you know, would this all just go away? Maybe there'd be nothing but Bitcoin. I remember that last bear market was like, you know, maybe the the end state of all of this is like we have Bitcoin, but everything else, you know, you didn't really need. And so I think each step that we take, you know, the more of a realization that people and companies and regulators have that there's going to be a diverse industry of many different technologies and many different use cases, and it's incredibly complex, and it's going to take a while to figure out the right rules. But there's not an option to just ignore it and to hope it goes away. And the longer that you wait, you know. When it does, you know, when there is clarity, I think, you know, the, the folks that wait will be the furthest behind. Tomika, what's your thinking on this? We've seen in recent court cases in particular, ideologically diverse sets of justices come back, judges, uh, and tell the SEC in particular that its actions on these issues have been arbitrary and capricious. Judges are losing patience with the way that the regulatory agencies have been conducting themselves in the absence of legislative guidance. And so the fact that we are seeing legislative guidance start to emerge, even if it's not yet fully formed, is going to have a big impact and will hopefully take us to a better place in the near future. Yeah, I guess you really can't beat someone that refuses to die. So we'll see how that goes. That wraps up today's discussions. Thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, where can people find more about you and your companies, uh, Tomika? Uh, you can find us at han.co, so H-A-U-N.co, and we'll look forward to continuing the conversation. Absolutely. Katrin? You can certainly find me on LinkedIn and definitely check out the Visa.com crypto page. Kai? On Twitter or X.com, I guess I'm saying it now at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. You can find me on Xerox Mauricio on X, Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn, and obviously 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11fs or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird, LFG.